Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian. This is Season 2, Episode 4. Today, I'm speaking with Melissa Matthews. Um, she was a wonderful chat, and I really enjoyed having a chance to talk to her. I know her from working on Medium with me as one of the several uh, contributors to the One Table, One World magazine on Medium, and she has just been a delight to read her articles on vegetarian cooking and being able to see the process that she uses and getting to talk to her about how she creates her recipes was just fantastic. She is a first-generation American storyteller, a mixed-media artist, writer, facilitator, and entrepreneur from Brooklyn, New York. And I tell you, that bio does not do her justice. As you're going to hear in the interview, she is a very accomplished person who very much undersells herself. Uh, she graduated with a BFA in painting from Howard University in 2008. She is currently living, working, and raising a family in her cultural home of Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and there's so much more to her. She's also a children's book writer, and she teaches children. Um, she does so much. So, And here we go. Onward to the interview. Hello everybody, I'd like to introduce you all to something that is not only delicious, but also is making an impact. Thrive Coffee is a nonprofit craft coffee roaster who uses coffee to create careers and training opportunities for individuals with disabilities. Thrive Coffee's beans are locally roasted in small batches to ensure the highest quality, and they ship nationwide. Just three bags sold pays for one hour of work for their differently abled employees. So I encourage you to check out their website at drinkthrive.org to buy a few bags today. As an added bonus, if you go to drinkthrive.org and use promo code librarian at checkout, then you will get 15% off on your first order. Again, that is drinkthrive.org, promo code librarian. Let's support this great cause. And just as a little fact, they're based out of Richmond, Virginia. Their slogan is coffee with a mission. Try some today. I'm enjoying some and it's quite delicious. Ah, it's a good cup of joe. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian. Today I'm speaking with Melissa Matthews, who is a fellow writer on Medium, and she is part of the group that is One Table, One World. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Now you're um, talking to me from Trinidad, is that correct? Yes. Trinidad. How is it in Trinidad today? It's hot. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily it's not raining. It's rainy season. So usually it rains every day uh, during rainy season. But today the sun is still shining and I'm grateful. Nice. Well, if you get any rain, you can send to us. I would love to have some. We're very hot and dry where I'm at, so. No. It's, I'm sure in a couple of hours, it'll be like torrential rain. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll be wishing for this one. But now, um, you're originally from America, am I correct? Are you from New York? I was born and raised in Brooklyn to Trini parents. Nice. Um, so we made a couple trips back and forth when I was younger, but um, in 20... 11 my twin sister moved to trinidad full-time um and then i started splitting my time like six months here six months there and then i met a man and then i moved here <laughs> so, 
Well, I really enjoyed your um, recipes on One Table, One World. And I think the one thing that I've noticed most about your writing is that you're, you, there's a lot of ingenuity there and there's a lot of inventiveness. You're not just cutting and pasting and writing recipes. These are not just simple recipes. Oftentimes you're using a lot of knowledge on cooking vegan cuisine and making it good. And there's a lot of art to it. So how did you come to write food articles? Did you always want to do this? Were you always drawn to like food writing or did you just kind of stumble upon it? I really love food. And um, so I grew up with my grandmother. Um, I was raised by my grandmother and my mother primarily. And um, my grandmother and I bonded over food. So she was a really great cook. My mom is also a really great great cook, but my grandmother is a great cook and a great baker. And we would watch cooking shows. We would watch PBS every Sunday, Jacques Pepin, and like ah. all these, you know, Yang Kang cook. Yep. Um, so my twin sister and I would sit with my grandmother and watch these shows and she would try recipes. If we ever came home and said we wanted to try something, um, she primarily cooked Creole, Creole Trinidadian food, which is um, like a mix-up of different cultures that that um, that are here um, but so like I remember they sent us to this fancy pri uh, private school uh, for preschool and they had a private chef and the chef made chili and white rice and my sister and I were like two years old we've never seen this before in our lives and we go home and we're like granny can you make chili and white rice and she had no idea what chili was, but she figured it out and she made it for us. And she just always encouraged us to get into whatever looked interesting to us. When we were like in fifth grade, we decided we wanted, she used to make pana chocolate for us at home. Ooh. And we decided we wanted to sell pana chocolate at school. And she didn't charge us any overhead. She let us keep all the profits. Nice. <laughs> She would make pana chocolate and we would sell it for 25 cents for one at school. And we were very popular. I was going to say, <laughs> I bet you were really popular. Everybody wanted to be your friend. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I've always just been drawn to food. Um, I, at home, I never felt like at home in my mom's house, I never felt the need to cook because my grandmother was a really strong cook. My mom was an amazing cook. So my, they would split the days. Um, so my mom, my grandmother would cook during the week and on the weekends, my mom would do these big feasts, you know, for Saturday and Sunday. And then I went away to college and I realized that not everybody ate the way. No, 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 no. <laughs> that we ate. And um, those meal plans at Howard had me struggling. And so I called my grandmother and I learned to cook over the phone. And so when she passed, in um, 2017, I think a way for me to get closer to her was to start writing those food memories down. And I know that was a really long drawn out answer to get to this, but um, yeah, so she passed in 2017 and part of the way that I honor her is through food. When I cook certain recipes, even when I'm reinventing things in ve into vegan recipes, often the center of it is something that she would have cooked or made for us when we were children 
or something that reminds me of an adventure we went on. You know, she used to take us to cheese shops and to try different desserts. And she exposed us to all the things she could possibly think of that were outside of the things she had grown up with, with food. And they used our birthdays as, as opportunities to expose us to different cuisines. We didn't do parties, we did fancy dinners. We could pick a restaurant, any fancy restaurant we wanted to go to, and we could invite a friend each and go and have a fancy meal every birthday. Uh, so food has always been linked to these really important memories for me. And so when I write about it, uh, that's what I'm tapping into. And so when I got on Medium in 2019, I started writing these recipes from memory, things that my grandmother used to make for me. And then when I went fully vegan, it became about transforming those recipes into vegan recipes. And then I started playing with new flavors and getting more excited and, and doing things I had never thought or dreamt of doing. And really my food comes from whatever I have in the pantry. Uh, that's the one lesson I learned from my grandmother is that food should not waste. Yeah. I think it's funny that one of the most common things I've seen talking to different cookbook authors is that almost all of them have these memories of, t of cooking with their grandmothers um, and or grandparents. And there's that, this commonality that makes them want to share further and like share this experience with others. And I think it, it kind of drives a lot of people to food writing because they're sharing what they've experienced. And I mean, your, your writing is so good that I, I, I was kind of like curious to find out if you have a cooking background or a chef school background. But I think, you know, from what you just said, you, you've had a lot of experience doing a lot of cooking for families, which I think is many ways on par with, you know, chef school. <laughs> because <laughs> It's a lot of work, you know? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I've never worked in the food industry. I don't think I have the temperament for it. <laughs> yeah, I have. It's tough. It's not easy. Yeah, I've never done that or the service industry in the way of like, you know, um, outside of doing like clothing retail when I was in college, but I'm not, yeah, I don't have that background at all, but I just have a, a love of food. Um, and that always propels me. I dream about food. I wake up and I'm like, how can I recreate that flavor I had in the just in the dream this is going to be an amazing meal you know i'm super excited and then my partner is just like yeah whatever you cook i'll eat like whatever Leave now, me alone. how did you um when did you become a vegetarian and how did you um i mean sorry i apologize how did you um become a vegan and w what brought you to that and when you became a vegan what experiences did you have with cooking in the beginning Okay, so one day my partner came home and he was like, we should eat less meat, right? And so we started just slowly buying less meat, cutting it out of our diets, more from a financial perspective. Meat is extremely expensive here. Yeah. Um, and at the time he had just, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 19, but he had just stepped out of his job and become, become a full-time entrepreneur. And he was like, how can we cut costs or whatever? Meat was like at the top of the list. And so we had gone down to eating meat once a month. And then before we realized it, 
we had stopped eating it altogether. Um, and it wasn't really like a conscious decision. It was just like, well, we're not buying it. We weren't missing it. Um, and the food was just as tasty. I think because it was in a conscious effort, I just cooked things that I wanted to eat. I think later on, like in our journey, then I started looking for ways to replace those meaty flavors. But in the beginning, it was just, oh, I feel like we could eat kalaloo and macaroni pie and all these things, which in Trinidad would be considered Sunday food. And it, we didn't miss the meat. We didn't miss the dairy products because I realized that I could swap coconut milk, which is something that's already prevalent in Caribbean cooking. Um, so it's not a new flavor. There's a lot of different fruits and vegetables here too that make it much easier to eat vegan. If you look at the, at the core of a lot of Caribbean diets, you won't see a lot of meat, especially from people who grew up uh, poor. They're just, you know, meat was a treat. It's right. only in these, you know, in the, at least in my family, it's only in the last generation or so that meat has become a very big part of our diets. Right. So it wasn't very difficult for me to say, okay, well, I'm not eating meat, but I can eat this, 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 and this instead. Um, I think where I've gotten more inventive is trying some of the uh, replacements that we never knew about. Like I never knew anything about um, hearts of palm or anything like that when I was growing up. But I, I follow um, a few vegan chefs or not chefs, but home cooks like Rachel Alma, who's a cookbook author now. Are you familiar with her? She's from the UK. Yeah, yes. Um, and I, I really got into trying new recipes, um, Caribbean recipes, using more of that stuff when I started watching her channel because I was like, oh, here's somebody who's just like me. You know what I mean? She's first yeah. generation. She cooks a lot of Caribbean food. And I was able to relate. And in so doing, finding my own voice in my food writing and stuff like that. And then realizing that I was exposing people to my culture through these recipes. And I don't know if that was an intentional thing, but it just became a part of it. Now you, um, in, your, in your cooking, in your recipes, you have a lot of good swaps for things to kind of take something that might like shrimp, for instance, you had substitutions for that they were really great and none of it was anything that I thought would be punishment or, you know, hardship for me. It was, it was all stuff that I thought would be, and you even managed the hat trick of uh, making tofu sound yummy. You had this one recipe where you had a pressed tofu dish that was kind of barbecued. And I thought, damn, that sounds really good. And I think I'd rather eat this than like a lot of things. Like, I think that'd be almost like a, I think, McDonald's could pay attention to that and do a substitute for that instead of having a nasty McRib, they could have this instead. So I think that that's the thing. People think, oh my gosh, veganism, they're trying to take something from me. But for I like food. That's what I always tell people. I yeah. would not be vegan if I could not have yummy food because I would be the hangriest woman. Yeah. I really like food. And yeah. So for me, it is finding flavors that work. It's, you know, like 
it's because it's very rare that the, the flavor is coming from the animal product itself. Mm-hmm. Often the flavor is coming from what you season it with, what you yeah. marinate it in. And so those things are easily replicated if you're open to it. I also don't force people to eat vegan, right? When I throw parties or dinner parties, I always have an option for meat eaters because I don't, I never wanted anybody to force anything down my throat. Right. But if you're open to it, you can try my food. And if you like it, then I know I got you. If I got you once, I know the next time you come over, you're going to eat more. And then I have people, you know, messaging me for recipes and stuff like that. But I don't force it. Well, I think, you know, it's funny because in many ways, I think it's people who cook really well and can take these things and make them yummy like you're doing. It's a difference because when I was young, I'm old enough to remember when um, vegetarian and veganism came out in the 70s. And let me tell you, much of what was being prepared was not very good. I remember we would try and replicate some things at home just to be more healthy. And a lot of it, I think, came from a place where there wasn't a lot of experience cooking this way. I think they were just like ham-handedly just like putting tofu and everything without <laughs> even knowing how to cook tofu. I think tofu seems to have had a definite learning curve in the United States and abroad over the years, because in the seventies, it was just like, you plop it in something like spaghetti sauce, plop in tofu. You know, it was in, I think a lot of those canned soy products were used. That I think you've ever seen, they, they don't look very appetizing. So I think vegetarian and veganism almost look like punishment, like, or like being a martyr, you're wearing like a hair shirt in the cause of this. But now, I mean, geez, I've been to vegan restaurants in Oakland near where I live. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I did not miss anything. That food was so good. I wanted to lick the plate afterwards. So it's, I don't think, I think oftentimes it's people like you, you, what you're doing, you're taking it and you're adding art artistry to it. Like your, your tofu process is a process, but it's based on education. You know what you're doing. Yeah. And, and I think it's a lot easier than people think it is. You know, yeah. it's hard to unlearn you know, years of programming, like vegetarianism and veganism is rat, rabbit food. And I don't want, you know, people are really entrenched in those beliefs. So I don't debate those things. Yeah. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you can feel how you want to feel about vegetarianism and veganism, but I eat this. Would you like to try something? <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean, that's more of my approach. But also I think what there's something really interesting in what you said about American culture in the 70s around veganism and vegetarianism being this like martyrdom. Whereas like in the Caribbean, we had Rastafarianism, right? Right. Who, where many of their sects, not all of them are um, vegetarian or vegan, but most of them are. And so they would, um, they coined the term ital food, right? So these are foods that are Plant, that are plant-based, that are grown, um, you know, generally hope, you hope that you can get food that is grown in your garden. That was how they kind of um, developed the culture of um, Rastafarianism. And my, my parents were Rasta for a very short period. Um, my father longer than my mother. So I was, I, 
I understand what that is also culturally, right? And so those foods were tasty. It was just the food without the meat. It was the stewed peas and the provision. We have a lot of ground provision here in the Caribbean. So like sweet potatoes and dasheen. Do you know what dasheen is? No, I don't think so. It's like, um, I think in Hawaii, they call it taro. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, so we use the leaves from that very often to make kaulu. We use the root, we boil it and, and um, have it with, um, with kaulu, the soup or the sauce, or we have it with um, oil down, which is like, a, um, I think I've done a recipe for oil down or medium, but it is like uh, root vegetables cooked down in coconut milk and seasoned really well and stuff like that. So learning, not having that background, understanding those cultures and understanding that it's possible. I think that's why you see so many like vegetarian Indian chefs who are really successful because it's entrenched in their culture. Right. It's just a part of how they eat. Um, so it doesn't seem weird or strange, but I'm seeing like designer veganism popping up here in the Caribbean now, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting to see because just a year and a half ago, you wouldn't see vegan restaurants here. And now um, with the pandemic, we are um, currently under a state of emergency here in Trinidad. Yeah. But some restaurants um, like ghost kitchens can operate. Right. So there are a ton of vegan ghost kitchens. Now I'm like, where have these people been? I didn't <laughs> even know. You know, so it's exciting to see so many people embracing it. I'm seeing some of my favorite Trini food bloggers try to incorporate more vegan and vegetarian options. And so it's exciting. It is so exciting to be here at this time and to see you know, people becoming more accepting of veganism and stuff like that. Because I've gone to functions and had to walk with snacks. Do you recommend any other YouTubers that have um, t have shows that, you know, teach ve uh, like, vegan cooking or any, any written authors that you recommend? Sure. I like, uh, like I said, I like Rachel Ama. I like um, Gaz Oakley. He does avant-garde vegan on YouTube as well. Um, I don't think um, Tabitha Brown is that bad. I like some of her recipes. Um, who else is there? There is, um, gosh, there's so many of them that I watch because I live off of food shows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Me too. I like to watch people cook. Um, hmm. Who am I missing? I know I'm missing somebody. You know, actually, I watch Tasty a lot. I like BuzzFeed. Not because um, all of their recipes are vegan, but you also can get a good feel on how you can veganize some of the recipes that they do. And I like oh. my daughter. My daughter is in love with this um, Asian... Australian lady, Marion Graspie. Mm -hmm. So she's not vegan or vegetarian, but I have managed to veganize a lot of her recipes. So we'll, oh, nice. I, my daughter likes to watch her show before she goes to bed at night. So we watch while I'm putting her to bed. She's seven. 
And so she'll be like, you can make this, mommy. You just have to replace the shrimp with whatever. Um, so I have made a few of the recipes and veganized them. And I found her recipes to be really good. Um, too. That's, not, that's wonderful that you have that something like that to share with your daughter. Are you teaching her to cook as well? Yes. Um, it's a slow process. She's kind of rambunctious. Yeah. In the kitchen, in the kitchen, it can be a dangerous place. Yeah. But um, she's really excited. So when I say I'm going to cook dinner, she's like, wait for me. And she has a special stool that she brings into the kitchen so she can reach the stove. And she wants to season things. And I let her do as much as, as she can do. And I explain the processes to her. Uh, because at her age, I was not interested in cooking at all. I picked up everything from my grand. I would sit in the kitchen with my grandmother or my mother and just talk to them. But I didn't realize I was picking things up by osmosis. <laughs> now, do you have any recommendations for somebody who is new to veganism about starting out? Like, like what are some good tips you can give to make it easier for them? Don't go cold turkey. <laughs> Make it a, as, as gradual a process as you're comfortable with. It's, you don't have to be the world's best vegan. It's not a competition. Don't compare yourself to other people. Slowly change your diet because if you do it in one fell swoop, and I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but for most people, if you do it in one fell swoop, it'll feel like deprivation right? instead of doing something that is positive for yourself and for your body. You want to find three or four dishes that you really love, uh, like the original version of, and learn how to veganize those, right? So if, because the thing is, you will have days where you'll be like, I really feel like eating my mom's lasagna or whatever. If you learn how to veganize that and you can get it to a space where it feels like the comfort food you grew up with, you won't go back. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And now let's return to our program. Now, now, I wanted to ask you, I mentioned your writing for food writing, but you do a lot of different types of writing. You're not just uh, one type of writer. You, you do all kinds of stuff. And um, I wanted to ask you what your experience has been writing online. I don't know that, I haven't really asked you if you wrote for other um, platforms other than Medium, but I know that you write for more than one platform on Medium. What has your experience been with online writing and, and how... What, what can you share with us about that so far? Okay. Um, well, Medium is the main platform that I write on online. I also have my own food blog called Recipeed, uh, where people can subscribe um, and get my recipes straight to their inbox. Yeah. But I started Recipeed out of Medium, right? I started writing my food stories on medium and got a lot of traction and decided this was something I could do. So I started a Substack. 
But other than that, I've always written. I write short stories. I write fiction. I write personal essays. I write politics, investing, anything, right? Writing has always been um, a cathartic activity for me, something that's therapeutic. So almost anything that happens in my life, I write about it. Um, I, I got comfortable publishing on Medium because people seem to be receptive to it. Outside of Medium, I publish in the occasional literary journal. I had like, a, I have a story coming out or that came out last month in a chicken soup for the soul. Oh, nice. I, I have a short story that's coming out in a literary journal next month. I, I try to get my writing out there as much as I can. I own a few businesses with my sister. So I'm also like kind of stretched with right. uh, doing facilitation and training. We do capacity building for NGOs and wow. um, nonprofits. Well, well, NGOs and small businesses. And, um, and I'm also an artist. So I'm going to circle back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> So balancing everything can be kind of difficult. I write children's books as well. I've published two children's books and I ghostwrite children's books. for. I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Children's books have you written? So I I write a series based on my daughter. It's called um, The Adventures of McKenna. So I have McKenna and and the Magical Curtains and I have McKenna and the Naughty Mosquitoes that are published. I have a book that... I've been dragging my feet on illustrating. Um, that's been the book itself has been finished, or the text has been finished for over a year. But I've been lazy about it, and I've been ghostwriting some children's books for other authors because uh, I really enjoy it, uh, and it comes easy to me. <laughs> I love writing children's stories, and I'm also teaching writing now. So I have a creative writing course for teens. Um, that's wonderful launching that soon so yeah such a needed thing I mean it's nice that we have good mentors for teen writers because often I mean when I was young that really wasn't around we didn't have that so I'm I'm glad to see that somebody's encouraging and helping young writers because that's such a necessary thing yeah when I was when I was 16 and I'll never forget this I applied to um, a writing program that was going to be held on Howard's campus I wish oh it was I think it's called the Hurston Wright Foundation they do a youth program and I got accepted and it was one of the best weeks of my life like you got to take your writing and you got it workshopped with professional writers and got notes and you got to fraternize with other young writers and everybody was so into the process of writing I think in art in general, writing or visual art, people so overlook the process and go directly to the finished product. And so much of, of it is about the process. Yeah. Um, and so having gotten that exposure as a teen and really been into writing since I was a very young child, I mean, I, uh, I had finished reading Maya Angelou's, um, what's the name of the book? It's Everybody Needs Traveling Shoes or something like that. Yeah. 
that one. I was eight, right? I had just finished reading. So I thought I was so grown, right? So wow, you were a very precocious reader. I was. <laughs> I was. And it was encouraged in our house. Um, and so I had just finished reading that book and I was sitting at my mom's kitchen table with a cup of black coffee. This is why I can't drink coffee these days, right? Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, if she can write this, I can write. I have, a, I have stories to tell. I can write. And from that day, I've been writing. I, there wasn't like a day that I didn't have a journal. My, my family was very um, supportive in that way. For every birthday, every Christmas, everything, they got me new, no, new books to read and a journal to write in. So I would write poetry and I would illustrate um, alongside the poetry. I would write short stories and it was encouraged like you know my my grandmother was into colonial writings and stuff because she grew up in colonialized trinidad she would read books with us all the classics the dickens the shakespeare all that stuff and dissect it with us and i'm talking like we were six seven eight nine. Oh my god that's amazing um, and my mom was into mysteries and stuff she would read and buy us copies of the books she was reading and we would talk about it my uncle was into african history and he was in the house when we were growing up. And so he would bring those African history books and he, we would sit and we would read them and dissect them. And he would, he introduced us to writers like Mark Mathabaney out of South Africa and that book, Cafe Boy and all those types of writing. So we had a wealth of knowledge in our house and people who were excited that we like to learn and they wanted us to know as much as possible. And so they equipped us with this kind of thirst for knowledge and the expression that comes from that. So, I, I, It's so wonderful that you were encouraged and had relatives that were so encouraging. I think so often some people don't have that and it really kills, I think a lot of would-be writers in the process. I mean, I know I, have dys I myself had dyslexia and I wanted to write and I did write, but, um, I remember a teacher said, you know, you're, you're never going to be anything more than a janitor. You should just give it up. And I remember wow. just losing my faith in it. And I didn't really write again until I was in my 40s. So I think a lot of time teens, circling back to your encouraging teens, I think having encouragement is so important because a disgruntled, jaded teacher can just ruin everything, I think, in some cases. That is so true. That is so true. And I think part of that is why I'm so... Um, protective over my daughter and her educational experiences yeah she's not like like her dad and i are our readers and writers we both write professionally she is she can read very well for her mm -hmm. age and she has a vast imagination but she does not like to sit and read or write um I'm the opposite of that teacher. I'm like trying to bribe this kid to write stories. I'm like, I'll give you a dollar for every page. Yeah. You know <laughs> She's like, I don't want to write it. Can I just tell it to you? But, but also allowing her to lean into that. So I've started recording her, telling her own stories. And then I'll play it back for her. And if I can encourage her to write them down so that we can work on her handwriting and work on her thing, that's one thing. But I... I love the, the fact that she's so confident in her voice to be able to 
still tell her stories even if she doesn't want to write them down. Um, and so I think it's meeting kids where they are. The kids that I have worked with, some of them are brilliant and they just have not met teachers that inspire them to want to write. Or there are those who are just like, I'm just doing this so I can get through school. <laughs> and I right. get that too. But my thing with that is I want you to get through school and be able to be a strong communicator at the end of this, right? It's not about writing essays for school. It's being able to write a strong email to ask for a raise. It's being able to advocate for yourself in a way where people are going to understand what you're saying and take heed of your word and the power in your writing. Um, and so I've been able to get through to them through that. <laughs> um, and I love, young people i mean i know i look a, a significantly amount a significant amount younger than i actually am but <laughs> i love having that energy around me because it keeps me energized i've been writing and working for over 20 years and i'm so ready to retire so <laughs> it is like you know um it's refreshing to see that there are young voices who can kind of take up you know the mantle of of doing this work and and just really shining in whatever way they think that they want to um if that makes sense yeah no absolutely and i was really encouraged by what you mentioned the relative that was teaching you about history and talking about history because i feel per very passionate that the education process doesn't end when the kids leave school when they come home the education should be, I think, in, in the whole, I mean, it, it sounds cliche today to say it takes a village, but no, it but really it does. does. No, it does. Absolutely. It, it's everybody should be like, if an uncle is like a history buff, he should be talking to the kids, you know, and Listen, I don't yeah. know if I would use my uncle's tactics <laughs> because he took my, I will never forget. He took my sister and I to see Pocahontas and through the whole movie, he was like, it's a lie. It's a lie. <laughs> Well, good it's for him. It was like, it's a whole lie. They kidnapped her. She didn't <laughs> want to marry that man. <laughs> but I, I never forgot it, you know? And then after we went to see the movie, he showed us actual historical documents about like the real Pocahontas and like what this really meant. Um, and so as much as possible, I also try to have those conversations with my daughter. She's young, but we have talked about slavery. We have talked about racism um, as much or as little as she's wanted to, right? So yeah. um, if, the, if something comes up, I allow her to tell me what she understands it to mean. And then I tell her what I understand it to mean, not discounting her um, interpretation of it, but just presenting a different perspective. Um, and her dad is equally as open. I think uh, living here where it is a, it's a majority um, black and brown society, things are a little bit different than living in the States. Um, no. But when things come across the news or there's still class struggles and things that we see here that I can easily explain to her, okay, so... Um, this is what we're talking about because these people don't have as much money or they don't have all the things that we have or in this but 
it is the idea that kids don't come out as a blank slate. They have personalities and they have um, thoughts and they understand the world a particular way. So if we just dealt with them like they're human, <laughs> it makes life so much easier. I mean, sometimes my daughter's, um, her charisma and her zest for life is downright inconvenient. But <laughs> I have six kids. I know what you're saying. <laughs> but I live with the moments of short-term embarrassment or inconvenience yeah. because I want her to step into and to to continue to embrace her voice. You know, I remember they had they were teaching them how to pray at her preschool. And my child stood up and told the kids, I always tell her, you don't do anything if you don't know why you're doing it. And so she asked the teacher, why do we have to put our hands like this to pray? And the teacher had no answer. My child turned around and was like, don't put your hands like this. Miss does not know why we have to do this. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> I was like, girl, they're going to kick you out to preschool. <laughs> I don't know. But it's those types of experiences and just, understanding that she's a human um, and loving watching her grow and develop. I see that in other people's kids and I want to nurture it too. Right. You know? No, I mean, I, cause it got, I know, I know that like so often so many kids are just beaten down and they can't ask questions. They're not allowed to like have any opinions. I mean, for many people, me included, school was just a prison sentence that you did for 12 years. You know, you, you did your 12 years and you got out, you know, and you were, I, I avoided it as much as possible. I skipped school as much as possible. I didn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. I had some enjoyment, but I didn't really enjoy school. And I, it's, it's crushing to see that because it really should be a place where minds are nurtured, not hammered down, you know? Yeah, it's, I think I've been super lucky to have educational experiences that were um, supportive and or environments that were supportive and were encouraging. I went to a um, experimental school in New York, um, John Dewey High School. So we didn't have bells. We didn't have um, anybody telling you where you had to be. We had majors in high school and we had schemes that we had to follow. We had independent study. And so if, if you didn't know where your class was, there was nobody that was going to tell you where you were right. supposed to be. You could sleep on the campus all day long and nobody would notice. Yeah. But if you had the drive um, to go to class and to immerse yourself in the different things that were offered and take advantage of them, you really soared. Uh, you know, I did Japanese, I learned about Japanese food in high school because I took a class called, um, what was it? It was called Japanese something. And we did like the history of Japanese food and culture. They talked wow. to the Japanese tea society. And this was a public school. Oh my um, God, I would have loved that. We had nothing like that when I went to school. <laughs> <laughs> we went, um, They and then they had history classes like, um, the Kennedy years and like we talked about conspiracy theories and like all types of stuff um, it was a really um, wonderful time to just explore all these different things that I hadn't been exposed to and debate them 
with my teachers and not know I could debate them and not get in trouble um, for it. And so I'm, I'm blessed to have had those experiences. And then I went to Howard and I worked six jobs <laughs> in college. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yes. And what I learned from that was that I'm resilient. <laughs> so um, being at Howard, though, was also a wonderful experience because it was this kind of Black enclave of um, academics, artists, you know, people, anybody who's anybody comes to Howard when they want to introduce something to the overall Black community. And so... And I learned there that, um, you know, Blackness was not um, one thing. There are so many different ways and spaces to be Black, which I knew in some degree because I'm, you know, Afro-Caribbean as opposed to someone whose family is born and raised in America. It's a very different culture. Um, I got a lot of exposure because I grew up in Brooklyn in an enclave of West Indians. Right. Going to college at Howard with all these Black American people, I was like, what is going on here? What are they (laughs) eating? What is that? But it taught me so much that, you know, we are so multifaceted. There are Black people that are into all types of things. You know what I mean? They are goth Black people and you know, um, people at different economic, socioeconomic levels and people doing all these different things. So that was an, ex- an inspiring place to be. And also it built a foundation for me when I went into the working world, because oftentimes you can be the only person in your office or who looks like you and then everybody's looking at you. So when you go into a space like that, understanding that there are other Black professionals in your network and that you can reach out to them and you have support and you all understand what each other are going through in the art world, in business. You know, I think that that was one of the major things that I took away from going to Howard. Um, But all of my educational institutions that I went through throughout my life really had buoyed me, you know, and gave me the confidence to step out and be an entrepreneur. I started my business at 19 and I had no business acumen. And, you know, I might still argue to some degree, I'm still figuring it out, but I haven't worked for anybody full time since I was 19. You're probably better off for it. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, you know, that flexibility, that freedom. I don't know if if I knew then you know, the life that I would build for myself and the opportunities that would come from just saying, you know what, I don't think I want to work for anybody else. You know, you bring up an interesting thing because, and this is really off topic, but it's, you know, parent to parent, I'm I'm interested in this. Um, I I have a stepson and he basically at 19 just entered the retail world and started working and, and, and learning about entrepreneurship, investing money. Do you think <clears throat> it's the best way to go. I mean, because so often we try and channel our kids into having like a one size fits all model. Like mm-hmm. either they go right to work or they go into education and, and get a degree. And it's supposed to be like tab A, slot B. This is you hilarious. Know, 
because one of my really good friends is right now taking her son and her niece on um on a college tour in Boston and the way that <laughs> these kids were on the ride to Boston these kids were telling her college is a scam and she was getting so upset and I'm like but it is college is a scam if you can find other ways to network that's that is the important part of college it's meeting people and building a foundation a network of people that can help you to propel yourself forward in from a career perspective and sometimes from a personal perspective we don't go to college to learn new things to be honest they say that you you have developed fully who you're going to be by the time you're seven years old right so everything after that is great <laughs> right and college is a social experiment right right if you can find other ways of having those experiences not necessarily living in a place with people and going to classes with them but interacting with them and making the connections you need those human connections that are going to propel you forward college is a total scam it's right. not worth paying for yeah um, i mean i work in i work in education i work for a university and i keep track of a lot of the students as they go through and many of them i keep touch with them after they graduate <clears throat> and i see either there's a population of the students that use their degree they go off to a career and it's kind of like that linear track, like we've always been told is the case. Mm -hmm. But a larger proportion of them, I think, they, they, they go back to retail after they've gotten their master's or doctorate, or they work you know, in some kind of service industry, but they don't always go towards the career that they took the degree in. And I see people where it doesn't, the model doesn't fit for them. And so they're kind of left at the end going, what do I do? You know? Yeah. What I will say, though, is that I have a, I have a degree in painting. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to get to that. I'm glad you brought that up. Right. And what I will say is that I do use my degree in that it really helps me. I, hone, I use those techniques and the thinking outside of the box, the artistic. And I, it's not something that I would say I didn't always have. I was always a creative person but it allowed me to zero in on what those skills were. So it helps to know the rules before you break them. Right. right? And right now I say, I call myself a storyteller, right? And so if you ask me professionally, what do I do? I say, I'm a storyteller and I help other people learn how to leverage their stories to, to propel themselves forward or their organizations forward. All of that work that I did at Howard learning how to paint and learning these different techniques, I apply when I am teaching people how to, um, to do things to make their organization stronger, teaching them how to tell their stories to get funding. Telling. So it, it helps me formulate trainings that are inventive. It teaches me new ways to connect to people it's like my mind works really circularly. And so it'll, it'll be like, oh, okay, we're working on this concept or whatever. When I was at Howard, we did this in terms of mixed media collage. I can put these together and do this, you know? So it helps me to, um, 
expand. I think it really just works with my thinking process, my critical thinking and how I build systems um, as a facilitator and a curriculum developer. Um, so I wouldn't say that it was a complete scam. Do I think I would go back and spend the money I spent? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure you feel that way when you pay your student loan bills. <laughs> exactly. But, um, you know, it's this, you know, I still paint, I still sell art. Um, when people say, why is your artwork so expensive? I'm like, it took me, you know, X amount of years and $60,000 to learn how to do this in 10 minutes. So you're not paying for the 10 minutes. You are paying for all the time up until then. But I do think that educational experiences are um, paramount, but I don't think that all education happens in schools. Right. Right. And so people look at me crazy when I say, I don't care if my daughter wants to be a financially savvy beach bum. I'm setting her up to do whatever she wants to do in life. Right. Yeah. With all the investing and all the things that my partner and I are working towards, our goal is for her to have enough money that she could decide she just wants to lay on a beach all day if that's what she wants to do, as long as she does not you know, squander the money away. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, this idea as parents, we always think that we know what's best, right? But the world that we're training our kids for is not the one that they're going to live in, right? Yeah. The world that I grew up in is not the world that my daughter's growing up in or that my friend's kids are growing up in. They are growing up in a space where you don't need a four-year degree. Right. I mean, I say this to my wife all the time. We're both Gen X and we, and we were very much the angst. I was the typical angst ridden. I give up. What's the point in trying Gen Xer? I did care. I thought, what, what's, you know, no, there's no future. Why bother? You know, nihilist. And then I, I say all the time, our, our kids are making fools of us. <laughs> we said there's no future and they're coming up. They're not going to school. They're like, you know, developing these portfolios at 19 they're all becoming wildly successful and they're just inventing their own lives. And, and we had no real say in it. We just pushed them through, through school like most parents. And so they're just doing whatever. They have all these connections. They have friends from around the world. And we're like, what's going on? Let's <laughs> see. That is the point, right? It's yeah. like, you know, for me, it's like, if you don't need it, don't do it. Yeah. Right. Do what works for you. But it took a long time for me to, understand that that's even what I was saying and doing. My mother thought I was nuts. I remember when I told her I was getting my degree in painting, we were driving past New York Law School. That lady circled New York Law School so many times. <laughs> and, she, and she said, and I quote, why do my children ascribe to poverty? <laughs> you, <laughs> you want to be a painter, the next one wants to be a journalist. How will you all survive? You cannot move back in with me. And I was like, lady, we're going to be fine. But she didn't see it. And I remember the first show I did, I, um, I was invited to do a private show at an NBA player's house um, in New York. And I happened to, I stayed with my mom that weekend. So I took all my pieces up and then I got dropped off at the show, set it up. I came home with like $10,000 worth in cash. 
Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> my mother was convinced. She was like, yes. <laughs> Next art show, my mom's like, can I help? You need any help? This is ready, you know. So a lot of times you just have to prove your concept, right? Yeah. People, you have to be strong enough to believe in whatever it is that you're doing. And I know it sounds cliche, but even, you know, my six-year-old, she, she's six going on seven. She'll be seven in November. She's she says, you know, I want a YouTube channel, right? And I was like, mm, I don't know about this. But we bought her like a mic, one of those uh, electronic mic things yeah. for Christmas. And she started hosting like little mini shows around the house. And like when we had family over and I was like, okay, we need to set up her YouTube channel. You know, it is really just having that confidence and allowing kids to be confident enough to tell you that, hey, I know you think I should do this thing, but I want to do this and letting them lean into it. You know? Well, I want to ask you um, something I've been wanting to ask you through the whole interview is that are we expecting a uh, cookbook out of you soon? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am thinking of a concept it won't be like a straight cookbook Good. but it will definitely have recipes in it nice um, um it's so new that like the idea is so new that I don't want to like get into too many details but it's I'm so excited it'll be illustrated Ooh, very nice I'm, I'm super excited about it and I'm hoping that I get I can make some time to work on it before the year is out. But. Well, I have every faith in you. I know that you'll do wonderful. I can't wait to see it and, and uh, buy a copy of it. I want to ask you one last question, and hopefully this is the fun question. Um, if, you were, if you could have um, any 10, up to 10 people, really any amount of people, um, alive or dead, famous or not famous, to a dinner party, who would you invite and what would you serve? Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize I had that many people. Yeah, you could do as many as you want or as little as you want. It's up to you. Okay. So I would definitely invite my grandmother because I've changed my diet so much since she passed. And I think she would be excited to try some of the foods that I've been making. Um, And I just would love to see her. Um, Also, um, I had... I have a cousin who was like a big brother to me. He passed of leukemia um, a few years ago. Oh, I'm very sorry. Um, I would have him. I would probably have Maya Angelou. I would have. Oh, wow. Nice. Jean-Michel Basquiat. Oh, nice. I'm fascinated by him and his work. Um, Alive. Somebody that I would like to meet. That's alive, though. Um, Hmm. It's a hard question. It is. It is so hard. Um, that I look, you know, I absolutely love Nikki Giovanni. I think I would have her and Romeo Bearden, who is long dead, but <laughs> such a, an influential artist in my life. Um, I do a lot of mixed media collage work, and I was very influenced by her style. And um, what would I serve them? Oh my goodness. 
I would, I've had some people to say pizza because I wouldn't be too intimidated to cook for them. <laughs> you know, that never dawned on me. I think I would be too high for them to taste my food. <laughs> be like, what? I would probably do like a vegan paylow. Oh, nice. my, grandma, my grandmother would probably be like, girl, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would probably do that, and I would do, um, I probably would do a whole Caribbean spread. I really would. Probably, like, vegan macaroni pie and kalaloo and soupies and, like, a good old Sunday, Trinidad Sunday food. I probably would do veganized. Nice. Because nothing says home. <laughs> like, Trinidad like yeah. Sunday food. Very nice. I, I really want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've had a wonderful time talking to you and I hope I can have you on a, several more times. I look forward to it. I okay. feel like I derailed you from some of your questions. No, I no, no. It's been, I, we've had, a, I've see, felt like that we've had a lot of tendrils that could go in different directions and it's supposed to be a food podcast, but talking to you, I have so many other topics I want to talk about. I mean, we could talk about art for another hour, we could talk about, you know, education and child rearing and writing, God forever, I could have many, many. So I want to have you back on, hopefully in the future. And like I said, I'd like to do a panel of the one table, one world authors and have them on. And so hopefully we could talk about that. That would be so cool. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I don't know if you could tell, but during the entire interview, I was smiling and having a great time talking to Melissa. I always enjoy all my interviews, but that one just felt like talking to an old friend. I could have talked to Melissa all day long. And getting to find out more about her was definitely wonderful. I really didn't know a lot of the things that she talked about when we went to talk. And it's funny, I think it just goes to show how you could know people online, but you really don't know them. And I was so happy to get to talk to her further. Um, I really want to encourage you to come next week, episode five. We're going to talk to Miguel Flieger, who is an author who wrote Cooking with Lovecraft. Um, I had a great conversation with him as well, and um, it was very enlightening. And I really loved getting to delve into his writing process and his work. So please come next week for that. That's also very enjoyable. So until next time, keep cooking.